Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the History of the Batman with London, recorded live at Meltdown Comics and Collectible on the beautiful Sunset Strip in Los Angeles, California. That's Hollywood for those of you who don't know. This is where we relive the defining moments, one of the most iconic figures in comic art and literature, the Batman. My name is Adam, and I am joined by the wonderful London, and the show is being produced multiple times by Mason Booker, and he's also engineering the whole thing. It's unbelievable. London, how are you? I think you know that I'm doing good. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, right? I do know. I'm, again, another deja vu. <laughs> We've had some technical difficulties. Yes, but we're, we're here. powering through. We're yes. here, we're here. We are here. And we missed a few weeks. Yes, we did. We want to apologize for I'm that. I'm very sorry. But we're back. Yes, and hopefully we will bring you more episodes more frequently. Yeah, and yes. now also you see what I'm wearing, right? I do. It's what amazing. is it? Tell the people. <laughs> He is wearing a History of the Batman shirt. Yes. Ah! And these can be purchased. Yes. On Tee Public. Public. That's T-E-E public.com. Go on, search Meltdown. You can get any of our show's logos on a shirt, a Raglan shirt, a T-shirt, a sweatshirt, a phone cover. They have shirts for kids. And yeah, all it's amazing. Tank tops. Oh, and how does it look? I mean, it looks pretty good, right? It does. You know? I need one. I need a few. Me too. I need like 10. Well, this this is you. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I I'm wearing know. a shirt. Which is still kind of weird to see my name on a shirt. Yeah. But it, a good weird, though. Yeah. It's very yeah. nice. And so hopefully you guys will buy a shirt, <laughs> support right. the podcast, support yes. the network. There you go. I'm very appreciative if you do. <laughs> and so we actually, you can go and buy multiple shirts with different logos for different shows. Right. And one of the shows that we have a logo for, which is unbelievable, Yes. is the Pod Sequentialism shirt with Matt Kennedy. Have you seen that shirt? Yes, I have. It's awesome. Yeah. The black with the yellow print and it's mm. just pop. Pops out, pops out. (laughs) Yes. And coincidentally, we have Matt Kennedy with us in studio. Hello. (laughs) Matt. Hey. Hey, I I feel like we've done this. Yeah. (laughs) Introduce yourself. I am Matt Kennedy. This is not Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. This is History of the Batman with London. But um, I, too, am on the, the Melt cast, the Meltdown Network. And I'm very happy to be. We've been planning on this for a while. Yes, we have. And, um... Things beyond our control have delayed it. <laughs> I feel like I'm speaking too early, but the, um, that uh, it, it's great to be here. And uh, for people who are unfamiliar with who I am, um, I go back a ways in um, in pop culture and in, in comics and stuff. And um, 
I mean, going back to being 12 and buying my first piece of comic book art, which is a, a Steve Bissett Swamp Thing page, and and then coming out to California, I was roommates with Gaston, and we both worked at, um, over at Fantastic Store Comics, which is where they shot True Romance, and um, you know, from there, uh, helped build the original store across the street from the current meltdown. I um, went to work at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where um, I've been basically there for the past 25 years with a long absence in the middle, um, mainly because um, Mel Gibson pulled me off. Mel Gibson. <laughs> Mel, Brooks, Mel, Bo- Mel Brooks pulled me off a register one day when I was um, working register at the shop, and I started acting for a very long time, and that became a very huge side career for a very long time, and went into production and released DVDs of Japanese exploitation films and Mexican horror films, and and here I am with you now. Wonderful. Very cool. <laughs> that was abbreviated. And if you want more details, of course, where would we get some of those? Oh, you can go to the um, popsequentialism.com and the Pop Sequentialism blog, which is what um, what kind of started this, um, and at least the podcast and the exhibitions that I was doing of modern pom- uh, modern comic book art of the modern era, based around um, writers and artist teams. And um, and that is kind of what brings us to what I think we're here to discuss a little bit. I don't want to blow the lead. Yeah. So I'll let you guys get into it. Well, appreciate that. London, what do you envision the show to be about? Well, this episode we're going to talk about particular creators of Batman. We're going to discuss creators such as Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson. We're going to focus on him especially, and discuss the creative process of how Batman came to be, how Robin the Boy Wonder came to be, and especially how the Joker came to be. And it's always fascinated me the controversy that has circled around all three of these characters and all of these creators. And and just to note, if um, just recently, I think it was September of last year, that Bill Finger finally receive credit for co-creating Batman and it's it's interesting to note that even if you aren't a comic book fan if you don't read the comics if you have watched any of the Batman films watched any of the Batman television series or even played the Batman video games every time up until recently it would say Batman by Bob Kane. So even if you aren't familiar with the work that Bob Kane did inside the comic books, you are familiar with it, not just because it's Batman, but his name has always been on the screen, no matter what you look at. And we are going to discuss why not only is it just Bob Kane and the kind of process that (laughs) that happened with Batman and why Bill Finger is just getting recognized, and then we're going to talk about Jerry Robinson and how he's mixed in here. And Matt has actually brought some amazing panels and pages that dives into the creation or possible creation of the characters Robin and Joker. So Mm. we're going to talk about creators today, which we haven't really focused on the show. We focused on certain artists and certain comic arcs and things like that. But we've never dived into how... Batman was created. And I think for any fan, no matter what you like the most, you should know how Batman was made. So this is the true origin. Yes, this is the true origin. This is and how the, the men, sausage is made. Yes, and the men who made the origin for Batman. So it's just, it's it's pretty deep. But I think everyone should know this. It's definitely an episode for everyone, not just the hardcore Bat fans 
or just the ones who have just started. And hopefully you guys will learn more about how you, possibly your favorite hero was made. Mm. <laughs> and so, Matt. Yes. How, how is this something that you know? Is this just research? Is Batman your favorite character? Or Definitely. Is, is Batman your favorite comic character? Robin, specifically Dick Grayson, is my favorite comic book character. Dick Grayson's wow. my favorite Robin. And <laughs> the reason being... He went deeper, though. He said his favorite character. I know. Yeah. That's, that's that pretty hardcore. That is interesting. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The reason that I feel this way is that I felt, you know, as a kid reading comics that I'm not an alien, so I can't be Superman. (laughs) I wasn't born a billionaire, so I can't be Iron Man. I can't be Batman. But if my parents died and I was adopted by a kindly crime-fighting billionaire, I could be Robin, you know, (laughs) under under the right circumstances. I didn't grow up in a circus, but that – and in a way, as as a young man, we're all trying to escape the shadow of of our fathers. And that is classically the story of Dick Grayson as Robin is that he's trying to get out of the shadow of Batman to become his own man. And I think that from a deep psychological um, point of view that that's every every man so that I, I identify with it. And I, I can see why I've followed that character through every writer and every um, artist who's been on the title and, and why I have specific fondnesses for certain for certain runs. But um, the, re- the, the way that I came to obtain what I consider to be an, an important piece of evidence in this puzzle of, you know, who created the Joker is um, in doing the Pop Sequentials exhibition, I was looking for a, a lot of pages to be able to exhibit, and I came across some historic pages that didn't quite fit the focus of my, my initial exhibition, which was the last 25 years, the Dark Ages of Comics. And I, I knew that I wanted to own a piece of Robin art by Cherry Robinson, who has always been credited as being a co-creator of Robin. I mean, his name is in his name. <laughs> it's Jerry Robinson. <laughs> but um, Is that meant to be? The, um, the way the story goes down is that he created Robin um, after seeing Robin Hood. Right. And that there was a specific edition of the book that, that was um, very special to him, and, and he used some of those images from that book to, to develop the character. And after getting some feedback from, um, I think, uh, DC editor Whitney Ellsworth, they um, decided to change the look of the character a little bit. And it was something that came up in a conversation with Bill Finger. Uh, Jerry Robinson considered Bill Finger to be a mentor. um, And it was Jerry that got uh, Bill the credit for creating the Joker in the 1990s. Um, And Bob Kane was reluctant to give credit to anybody but himself. And it's easy to, to judge somebody harshly like that. And there was a, a recent article, I think, that uh, London posted on, on your Facebook page, actually, about Stan Lee and um, the controversy that's been happening about, you know, this guy that's seen as this great ambassador to comics to the public has a bit of a different reputation among comic book professionals. Yes. And that it's sad that this guy who's created or is credited for creating all these these major characters in movies is making um, not as much money. I mean, he's certainly not in poverty, and he's got a stipend of a million dollars coming out of the studios, but that um, they come from the same generation in a way. I mean, and, and Bob Kane is older than, than uh, Stan, mm-hmm. and creating a character and, and getting credit for it was important to him, and he understood the importance of that in an industry where nobody else did. And so he's more of a pioneer even than, you know, um, uh, Siegel and... and um, 
and Schuster. Schuster in that they didn't even understand what they had with, with Superman. And because DC had Superman, there was a big push to have another character. And Bob obviously developed the Batman character as the, the absolute antithesis of Superman. Not a superpowered guy, a regular guy. Um, not someone who fought in the sunlight, but someone who fought in the shadows. But they both primarily fought in those early years gangsters. Well, real quick then, how do you guys, can you educate me on how that conversation went? So they, they strike gold with Superman. Mm -hmm. Right. What happened? It's the publisher says, okay, we need more. Right. And Sullivan, he approached Bob Kane at the time and said, we want a character that would be just as popular as Superman. And I'm pretty sure that Bob Kane saw the money that Siegel and Schuster were making, and it was like 30 times more than he was making. And of course, the money definitely interested him and said, yeah, I can make you a character that would be as popular. And as the story goes, Kane has many different inspirations for his idea of Batman, whether it's Da Vinci's flying machine or it's Pulp Fiction movies and comics like The Bat and The Mask of Zorro and all of these different elements. And he creates the name The Batman. But visually, I think as many know, his idea of the of Batman visually is similar to Superman. It has the kind of bright red and, and black and yellow colors. And he had wings that kind of were similar to a bat and just and he had a domino mask and all of the things that now when we see Batman if you look at him now it's definitely not the same and yeah. so once he created this character then Bill Finger was brought on to be a ghostwriter and he was asked to give his you know what do you think about this and so Bill Finger is known as well instead of this domino mask why don't we do a cowl of sorts. Instead of this red and black, why don't we do like a blue and gray scheme? Mm. And instead of the wings, the scalloped wings, why don't we do a cape? And while Bob, so so was yes. Bob Kane. So how did Bill Finger get in that room? How was that something from the higher ups, staff writer, I believe? Yes. So he was brought in. So it. So Bob Kane didn't bring him in. He was brought in to help him. And so then Kane showed him his work, and so he gave the suggestions. And and then while Kane had the kind of vigilante superhero aspect of Batman, Bill Finger brought in the detective side, him being that. And he decided, oh, he should have gloves because when detectives, they investigate, they need gloves. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so what molded was Bob Kane's vigilante side, and Bill Finger kind of created the civilian millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne persona, and he made him both the detective and the vigilante, and visually he changed, and that part of him was there, and then in Detective Comics 27, Batman debuted, and ever since then, or at least especially in the first year when Robin wasn't in yet, it was the first issues of Detective Comics, uh, Bill Finger scripted scripted the books, and... He brought a lot into the mythos, like he introduced like the Batcave, and he introduced a lot of elements that are huge, like in the trophies in the Batcave and all of these things. And I think that just starting right there is why a lot of people do not see Bob Kane in a good light, because for such a long time, these major contributions were not credited to the person who actually did them. Mm. And so even before we get into Robin and Joker and these other characters, 
it still right off the bat was very hard to and, and then I mean you didn't know you didn't know that Bowfinger did all this so then other uh, writers like Gardner Fox came in and then Will Mortimer and all those other creators that worked on the Batman team for the first two or three decades you didn't know that they even existed because Bob Kane did this deal with DC and in exchange for the rights of the character he would get the compensation and him having the sole byline of Batman created by Bob Kane mm. so for the longest time like I said until recently it's like only six months ago that we know that there was a co-creator in Batman and we'll talk about the other characters like Robin and Joker in our in our in the episode today but just the Batman character itself, even before Bill Finger was properly credited by DC, anytime I would talk about Batman, I always say he Bob Kane's a co-creator, Bill Finger's a co-creator. I think just out of the knowledge that we have and just out of respect to not just Bill Finger and the Finger family, but just the character itself because he brought in the major elements that we know and I think about it sometimes and I'm wondering you know the way that Bob Kane created Batman with the red and black and yellow scheme and the wings and the domino mask and just kind of and if he didn't have that detective side and he looked the way he did would Batman have evolved into the Batman that we know would someone have come in and brought in the detective brought in the Batmobile brought in the Batcave brought in the ideas that are so canon and are so known to the Batman persona, would that have would that have been created? Do you think someone would would we have seen the Batman that we see now, the Batman that we're gonna see in Batman vs. Superman, the Batman that we see in Snyder's like would we even get there? I think we'd be talking about Batman the same way we talk about the Doctor Drew mysteries. Yes. In the Batman (laughs) Jungle comics that um he definitely would have gotten his he would not have gotten his own comic. Mm -hmm. And um you know you talk about the fact that yeah that that most comic artists and even comic writers were not credited at all in comics until you start getting into the romance era of comics. You know, in the um, and well, in the EC era in the early fifties, mm-hmm. there's a huge talking more than a decade. But um, part of what helped people get credit is that artists started signing the artwork on the cover, mm. right? And so people <laughs> knew that certain artists did the covers and they'd look for those, and those guys didn't often also do the insides. But you could tell. I mean, even kids could tell. And um, where it becomes, I think, a great issue is. Especially when you, when you look at the the origin of, of of Batman specifically, is that it took a year, two years before he gets his own comic. Right. You know that it doesn't. Much like with Action Comics and Superman, there's there's a test phase where it's one feature in an anthology comic, and when they were developing from Batman in Detective into a Batman solo comic. They needed to come up with four stories to fill a comic book issue. And it was because they needed to have four features that Jerry Robinson, who had been hired um, after a chance meeting, I believe, in a country club where he worked as a teenager that Bob Kane was at and um, and found out, overheard him talking about the fact that he had he created this character, Batman, and they started talking that he hired, Bob hired Jerry to ink his pencils. And then Jerry was such a better illustrator that he would erase almost everything Bob <laughs> drew 
redraw it and ink it himself, and that became so much a full-time job that Jerry himself got an assistant named George Russo's <laughs> to, um, to help ink his pencils by the time he, Batman number two comes out. But the, um, you know, this, this cabal of people that are involved, Jerry decides that there's an opportunity for him to write his first comic book story and illustrate it because they needed to come up with four new um, features for the Batman comic. And um, Bob and, and Bill were happy to let that happen because Bill was a great writer, but he was slow. Mm-hmm. And um, Bob had almost no involvement at all, really, in the comic at that point. He might, he might every once in a while, bounce an idea off of somebody. So, how long did Bob King stay involved? Well, I mean, he was involved in that he hired and fired people, and it was right. his studio um, for quite a, a long time. And he he brought in Dick Sprang um, after um, a suggestion from Jerry, I believe, and other people that became really important to the canon. You, you talked about Gardner Fox. That these are all people that got hired because Bob Kane said it was okay to hire them before he sold his creation wholesale to national DC publications, um, and that was a very common thing too. That um, that if the publication saw that there was ancillary money, just as today in creating products or anything else, that they would just offer a buyout, and that's kind of what people were looking for at that time. You know that they saw the success that the Shadow had on radio. And um, and other radio programs, and it was their goal to achieve something like that—a kind of cross media success. And um, with Siegel and Schuster, you know, they they were always also working on other stuff, and not many people remember some of their other early creations because super. I mean, if you've got Superman, right? You know, it's like who dominate? Who batted in back of Babe Ruth? I don't know. (laughs) You know, who the other the other infielders? You know, who who is playing with Ty Cobb? You know, I've, I've, I'm sure there's people that, that know baseball and can tell you that, but it's like such a big thing becomes such an industry-wide um, success that it becomes the industry. And, you know, but there were other guys, and, and but they all knew each other. So, you know, when when Jerry was working with, with, um, with Bob Kane and, and with Bill Finger, um, you had Will Eisner was working in a studio, and right close by, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon were working in studios together. And they, they all came up in a very fast um, amount of time, like in the first five years of the birth of the medium, really, as, as um, creating original stories. So these guys all kind of talked to each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at a certain point when, um, when Jerry leaves working for, for Batman, he goes and works at what became the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and it was a school that was opened um, by Bern Hogarth and Silas Rhodes. It's called the Cartoonist and Illustrator School. And he was teaching, you know, for 10 years, four hours a night, five days a week. And he also was teaching at Pratt and Parsons. And he was friends with Will Eisner and he was friends with Bern Hogarth. And they would go and they would give speeches on the, um, the fine art influence on comics. And they would do these lectures. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking into like SUNY Purchase University or some local college and seeing Jerry Robinson, Bern Hogarth, and Will Eisner <laughs> live drawing and lecturing on the importance of heroic characters? And it was when Jerry was going to night school to college and he took a writing class that um, one of the teachers kind of drove home to him the importance of uh, dramatic irony. And that he felt that it was important to have, and at this point, there was no supervillain. Like I said, that these guys, these superheroes were fighting gangsters, normal guys. 
And so what better to say, well, this guy is, is more of a superhero than if there's a super villain. Mm. And Jerry thought that it would be nice to have a comedic guy because he was still a teenager and he knew the kids that were a little bit younger than him liked humor. And so he pitches this idea. And uh, they love it. And they're like, well, this might be a little too important for a guy writing his first comic to do. Mm. And so they put Bill on it to write it. And um, from all the the reports, uh, Jerry was kind of beside himself with grief because he knew he'd, he'd created this kind of great character. There is a famous drawing of the Joker card. And um, as I dug into the story about Jerry and his family and did a little bit more research, I discovered that Jerry's brother, mother, and father were all professional-level card players. That his mom, while she never competed in casinos, was a champion bridge player, and so was his brother, and his brother was a professional poker player. So decks of cards were always at the, Jerry, at the Robinson household. And when you talk about the look of the comic and how it, it moves from Bob Kane's original idea into this kind of very dark, gothic thing understand that Bill Finger was a huge fan of German Expressionist cinema yes. and Jerry Robinson's father owned the first movie theater in Trenton, New Jersey. And there's been this long story that Bob Kane told about um, Bill approaching him with an idea based on The Man Who Laughs. Now, The Man Who Laughs would, is a silent um, German Expressionist film right. and would have been at that point over 15 years old there weren't really second-run movie theaters that were carrying 15-year-old silent movies in 1939 in New York City. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't happening. Um, but if if there were any truth to that, it would make more sense that that would have come from the guy whose dad owned a movie theater <laughs> than from a guy who you know just liked uh, German films. Exactly. So th- th- there is definitely a lot of controversy about this. And, and every time I talk about this, um, I understand that there there are going to be haters. I mean, when I was talking years ago and, and getting upset about Jack Kirby's name not being on the um, the Marvel films and it being a big deal to me and, and having other people that I knew and had respected as a kid like Neil Adams and Steve Bissett talking about this stuff, that um, there were fanboys that were like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, they sign contracts. It's like, well, number one, you don't know what they signed, so, you know, shut up. But um, two, that you can't judge um, what you know to be a very savvy media contract with a multinational company in 2010, 2015, 2016 against the standard contracts of the day in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Mm-hmm. It was exactly. a completely different world. It is. And the rules that favored freelance fra- favored the ownership of freelance work to the person who produced it, not the company that paid for it. And over the years, comic companies fought to reverse that as they got bought by other larger media companies and so it's funny that if you talk to certain creators um about their contracts that the same companies that said oh we can't pay you for creating a um a derivative character like wonder girl or supergirl um the reasons they give now are the, are the exact opposite of the reasons they gave 20 years ago why they wouldn't pay him for it <laughs> so it's you kind of have to pick pick a road and I think that at the end of the day, if you sweep aside the, um, you know, the, the the Marvel zombie types and even the DC zombies that are just mindless, fanatical fans of corporation, that if you think about it, then we do feel that people who created things should be given their due. And even if they're dead and even if there's not money to go to estates and families, that the very least you can do is give credit. 
And over the years, the amount of overwhelming evidence that Jerry was a huge part of de developing the Joker, um, at some point, people have to kind of give it up. And usually the only way that companies do is if they're shamed into it. So we have Batman being created in the beginning stages. You say he fights gangsters. Mm -hmm. Then a supervillain is developed to sort of combat the extreme vigilantism that he is, you know, doing. Mm -hmm. And and then Joker was the first supervillain for mm -hmm. Batman? Yeah. Yes. And so what issue was that? Batman, Batman number one. one. Oh, mm -hmm. and, that, and then Detective Comics was before that. Yes. Right. How many Detective Comics issues were there before that? Well, it was at least, let's see, from 11. Yeah, 11, right? Because 27 to like 38. Yeah, 39. and 38 is within um, within three um, release weeks of Batman number one. Um, that the cover date on the two issues are like February or March and then spring. This is spring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's right after the creation of Robin, and yeah. then it jumps to Batman and Robin on the cover of Batman number one. And So Robin was in Detective Comics? Yes. Yes. Okay, so maybe we should hit Robin first. Well, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> obviously Jerry's been but, often credited as creating Robin. Right. Is, is that standard? Is that, so everyone knows. So we're talking Batman, it's Bob Kane, Bill Finger. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's that's now indisputable. Now. That's the gospel. <laughs> indisputable. Yes. Gotham, yes. <laughs> okay. Then Robin comes along. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, London, you've actually said that the reason that they created Robin was to give kids someone to identify with. Right. Because which I guess seems the to first, have worked with men. Right. Yeah. The first 10, 11 issues in Detective Comics and Batman is by himself. Much so, later than 1939, I right, would add. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still connected. Yeah. The main vision of Robin right. was to get a connection with youth mm -hmm. exactly. that couldn't identify with the millionaire right. or the billionaire now and, and it couldn't identify with the alien right it was the kid it yep. was you right and so and robin definitely played or gave balance to the really dark and gothic exterior that batman gave off to, and he's kind of this more optimistic even though he's faced tragedy as well but it's still perfectly balanced Batman's dark he became the light for him in a sense. Even that color scheme. Right. The red and the green the yellow I mean it's completely it, it's a perfect balance and with Jerry Robinson and, and Bill Finger and, and Bob Kane involved in the creation of Robin I mean that jump started the idea of the sidekick. So I that's mean, the three three of those guys created yeah. that character. Right. And for this particular show, we are going to focus on them because in the characters we're discussing, they all played a part in the creation of these characters, whether one person says the other didn't, and that's kind of the controversy. Involved. Is there that? Is there? Bob Kane refused to give up um, any credit to anybody until the early 90s when 20 years after the death of Bill Finger, something jarred him to say, yeah, um, Bill created the Joker. Yes. Mm. And um, and then, and Jerry had been all along um, fighting to get Bill credit. Um, and also, what many people may not know, is um, in the 70s, before the Superman movie came out, 
the um, both Siegel and Schuster were in very bad health, and they didn't have health insurance. And um, people like Neil Adams had got had kind of taken the cause on getting credit to Siegel and Schuster just to get them insurance. Wow. And the person who negotiated that deal, and it went on for years, but one midnight phone call between Jerry Robinson and Warner Brothers lawyer is what sealed the deal in getting Siegel and Schuster their deal, which got their credit back on all Superman materials. And it, it had disappeared once they sold their rights to the character to the company, you know, decades earlier. And that became a very landmark thing in comics. And now imagine this is in the 1970s. So Jerry creates Robin in 1939. It doesn't get published until, you know, 1940. Um, and if he's creating the, the Joker in that time frame too, you're talking about 35 years difference. Unlike most other comic book creators and comic book personalities, Jerry didn't stay just in comics. He went into syndication in um, in cartoons that were in newspapers, um, some single panel stuff, some sequential stuff. Um, he became a pop artist. He was in an exhibition next to Roy Lichtenstein in New York City. Um, he He had other interests and he did other things and he thought bigger. And so he didn't need money as badly as almost every other professional who worked only in comics. Are you guys familiar with how, at the time that the characters were created, there were contracts, I'm sure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. how, did, how did they overturn those contracts? What was the precedent to do that? Um, in overturning contracts in what regard? Well, because, okay, so you said Simon & Schuster created um, Superman. A seagull. Oh, sorry, yeah. Simon Schuster. Yeah. Um, Seagull Schuster, yeah. But the, it took them time to get the credit. No, they got the credit originally. Yeah, they, initially. Yeah, initially. And the then, money. And then it went away. Okay. And then when Superman became a TV series, they had fought to get credit for the merchandise associated with the George Reeve TV series. So they were always getting credit. But they they weren't getting they paid lost, like credit, right? But but <laughs> exactly. then their name wasn't even on the TV series, as I as I recall, and they sued and they lost, and that became a precedent until that decision was overturned in the 1970s, and um and with the movie coming out and they knew it was going to be big, um it was important that you know everybody in the community rallied behind these guys and Neil Adams took a really big interest in it Neil Adams has always been a big advocate of creators rights and um you know I, I remember talking to Neil at Comic-Con a few years ago and I'd for some reason over the years never had an opportunity to meet him or I'd met him once very briefly and and then really hadn't had a chance to talk to him until a couple of years ago and I saw that there were there were Neil Adams pages now selling for at that point forty thousand dollars or something, and I said, "Well, how do you feel about that?" He's like, "Well, I'm I'm really upset that um, someone's able to profit off of my stolen artwork because those pages, which were his property, were never returned, and so when you see that artwork from the Bronze Age at conventions from numerous artists, understand that that stuff just disappeared from the DC offices, and." There's now, with a lot of reclamation laws going into effect because of a treasure trove of um, stolen artwork found in Germany and Austria and um, in other collections around the world, that the repatriation of stolen artwork is probably going to affect comic book artists at a certain point. 
that none of the contracts specify that the company got to keep the actual artwork. Right. So that is clearly their property. Yeah. All right, so back to Robin. So they create Robin based on this idea of getting a connection to the youth. Right. How does that go? What would you know what happened in those conversations to come up with the boy wonder to make him an acrobat to do all these different things that uh, ultimately define the character as who we we understand him to be well kind of what matt touched upon earlier the idea for robin was there was ideas from robin hood and different other elements like that and the and more so bill finger well, initially he wanted to have Batman have someone to kind of relate to, to talk to about him being Batman and someone that he can share his secrets with, kind of like the Sherlock Holmes-Watson kind of relationship. And that's how the whole him being a young acrobat and then him seeing his parents killed before his eyes and everything kind of mirrors Bruce losing his parents at a young age and the, their, their origin stories are similar. And what I've always found interesting, I suppose, is when you read about Bob Kane and Bill Finger kind of going back and forth in terms of how Robin the Boy Wonder and how his origin story is made, kind of how we're talking about Bob Kane is taking a lot of the credit in, if you kind of jump ahead a little bit, in this uh, 1946 comic he was given like his own kind of biography and it was called like the true story of Batman and Robin. And Bob Kane tells these stories of how he created Batman and Robin and Joker. And it all illustrates that he created them on his own. It was for Batman. It said that he, his mom like sewed a costume that looked like Batman's costume. And he got this idea to create the character. And for Robin, he said that he got the idea of Batman having someone to talk to, not from Bill Finger's idea, but from like fan mail that he received. And with Joker, he said that he was in like a novelty shop and his friend had like one of those trick flowers. And it just, but it all circled around him being the only influence and having the only ideas of creating these characters. But in Robin, Bill Finger was the one that really drove home the idea of how Robin or Dick Grayson, Grayson should like be how he should be. And then Jerry Robinson came in and the visual aspects and the name and kind of having the R moniker and all of that, that played into the creation of it as well. Um, so, But even his effect on like Jerry's effect on the comic was such that the logo, like the bat logo that we all take for granted is a Jerry Robinson creation. You know, the classic Batman logo of, of the bat wings with Batman written inside it is, right. is comes from Jerry Robinson. And, you know, he brought in Dick Sprang and you, you talk about the flower and it's like, you know, Bob Kane clearly forgot the timeline of his own character because he didn't write it. Right. That, um, you know, that those really overtly comic elements come in far later in Much the comic. Much later, right. And you know, there's so many people around at the time, you know, Mort Meskin and and Dick Sprang, they weren't around when these early meetings that resulted in the creation of the Joker happened. But they did hear the stories, and they worked closely with everybody. And all of them supported the idea that it was Jerry Robinson's drawing of a Joker card that they had seen 
that um, was proof to them that he had created the Joker. But when he talks about how he created the Joker, he talks about that more Harlequin-looking kind of Joker that would be in a deck of playing cards circa 1938-39. And that is much more like the clown that appears in these preliminary pages that I came across. All right, so talk right. about these pages. Let's, okay. Let's get into them. Yes. So, well, I was... Because you've, you've, like, kind of uncovered a mystery, or yeah. you've solved a mystery. You you put on your purple gloves, yep. like a certain Cape Crusader, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, didn't get your fingerprints on anything. <laughs> well, at this point, I think my fingerprints are all over them. Okay. But the, um, you know, that when I was, like I said, I was assembling more pieces for the show, and... And I saw a lot of stuff didn't really fit the scope of that first show, but there was stuff that I knew, I knew I wanted to have for future shows. And I had come across an amazing Gene Cullen Tomb of Dracula page that just absolutely did not fit the scope of the pop sequentialism first exhibition, which was superhero comic art of the last 25 years, but it's a beautiful piece of comic art. And I had other pieces that I, I had collected over the years that were more from, say, horror comics than they were from... Um, from the the superhero comics and then just old Jack Kirby pages and that type of thing. And and I knew I wanted a Jerry Robinson page of that had Robin on it because he created the character and I've been collecting iconic images of Robin in their original um, artwork form for quite a while. And I came across this collector, you know, online, and his website was the most impossible thing to navigate I've ever seen in my life. What at year that was point. this? This is in 2011, but the website that this guy had was clearly set up in 95 or 98, and it was really little more than an Excel document put online with a lot of links to photos. And you'd, you'd look at something, you'd see the listing of the title or the character and the issue, and then the artist. You know, oh, that looks, I want to see this. And you pop it open because the picture was all the way to the left. And you, oh, great, how much is that? And then you'd, you'd have to slide all the way across your screen and move the entire image <laughs> to fit the format of the screen to see that it was not for sale. That it was really this guy's like 6,000 entry collection of comic book pages that he'd had over the years, some of which he sold and some of which he didn't. And there are a lot of dealers that have um, art posted and they don't post prices and it drives me crazy. And um, you have to inquire, and it's like, well, I think you'd be doing a lot more business if you just posted the prices. But then you have to go back in and constantly maintain that. And if you've got a large archive, it's difficult to adjust as prices increase on things. But I spent a night, you know, a night where um, my girlfriend at the time was out of town, and I was a little under the weather, and I just was going to dedicate as much time as it took to get through this entire website and see what was available and what he had. And he had these pages, which are preliminary pages. He had them listed as being, I think, Batman number 10. Um, there's a couple panels that were very much reproduced in Batman 11, I found out later. But um, they're preliminary pages, meaning that they're penciled. They're not complete. Um, but these ones were inked. And number one, preliminary pages from the 1940s are ex- exceptionally rare. Um, the paper drives were such that any paper that wasn't absolutely necessary was just put right back into the war effort. And I always make the analogy that in the Universal movie posters, Batman, uh, Dracula, sorry, and Frankenstein, which are the two iconic horror films of the era, those posters are valued at less than The Mummy because The Mummy is so much more rare, being a film that came out in the 40s. 
and that those posters just went straight into paper drives. Mm. So these artists would have also seen the cost of illustration board go up. You wouldn't waste illustration board, and you routinely hear about people erasing old pencils and just drawing it again and inking over it, and in some cases, even scraping that top layer of ink off of the pages and reusing that same illustration board for third, four, five, five different uses. So it, it's really rare to come across unpublished pages from that time frame. Um, it was listed as being a 1940s page, um, and it said unknown, but then when you clicked on this guy's image that showed the page, it did credit Jerry Robinson and George Rousseau. And did it say where he got them? It didn't say on his website, and I found out. I asked him later. So I, I, I bought the page. He had three, and I didn't want to buy all three at the same time because I didn't want him to think to look at these things and realize what they were, if they were indeed available. And I had no idea if they were, and the prices were really low um, considering the, the time that I was buying these in. Can you tell what, time, what you paid? Yeah, I think one of them was $350, almost seven, which is crazy low. And... Again, I was afraid that this might have just been set up in 1995 and never monitored again. <laughs> you know, that, but the prices were the prices. Yeah, you know, and so I con and so I, I looked for some other stuff, like not wanting it to just be this. You know, well, if I buy a little bit of these other things, it won't be so suspicious, and maybe you'll sell it. And so I found a, a great um, page that he had listed as being a uh, Vince Coletta romance page. It's clearly Jack Kirby, and um, <laughs> and then there was a couple of. Um, Turning the Pirates dailies, which are just fabulous. And I also, he had a Peanuts page, which is also priced really low for the time, and that turned out to not be available. But, um, and now, I um, mean, it's funny, I, when I appeared on uh, Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman, we were talking about that, and he asked me, well, how much are Peanuts pages? And I hadn't checked in a really long time, so the last time I looked at a, a Peanuts daily, um, you could still get something for around $2,000 or so, and now they're all about $20,000 to $30,000. Wow. That's just in the last five, six years. Um, but, you know, digressing, the, um, I, I order these pages and the guy qualified me. He's like, I won't deal with anybody I don't know. What are your references? I had to send him a list of references of other people I bought comic book art from. And he's like, oh, I know, I know Felix Lou. I was like, okay, good. And, uh, and so I asked him, I said, well, you know, I run a gallery. Can I send you a company check? And he said yes. And then I shamelessly asked for a discount, which he gave me. And um, I expedited the check and just sat and waited, getting hives for the next week until the package arrived. And when I opened it, the very top page was the wrong thing. And I was like, oh, no, it's the <laughs> wrong stuff. I knew it was too good to be true. And what had happened is he had packed accidentally an extra page, mm. and which I, I alerted him to and I sent it back to him. Actually cut down the masonite to fit specifically that, so I sent it to him really nice. And I I asked him where he got the pages, and he said that he had gotten them at a Sotheby's auction in the early 90s. And um, I knew that at that time frame, Jerry was routinely donating original artwork to causes that would be backed by auctions. And in the early 90s, it would have been his work for um, fighting hunger in Africa. But he had previously in the 80s been sending out work to support um, things that would later become like the Hero Initiative, you know, mm. supporting comic book professionals and, um, and that type of thing. And so uh, one of these pages has a Sotheby's tag on the back of it, contacted the auction house, um, and they seemed to think that it did come from the Jerry Robinson collection. So I had figured out that he probably, because... The page that caught my attention is the back of one of these preliminary pages, 
and instead of having a standard um, three um, three row grid, it has an extra row, and it it's not the type of page that would have gotten published at the time, but it features a Harlequin looking clown, and I know Robin's origin, and there was no clown in the origin, and even though his parents are acrobats and worked, you know, ostensibly at a circus, there's no clown in that origin story and it's almost noticeably absent and so it's almost like well were these things developed at the same time was the original robin origin story developed at the same time with jerry robinson that the joker origin and robin would be happening and then they just got split up that it was a more bang for your buck situation that because they needed to have so many stories at the time that he'd be working on multiple ideas at once we know that from will eisner's um, memoirs that he was working on sometimes five or six stories all at the same time. Sometimes pages that were created in one story would just get pulled out and placed in the middle of another story because they didn't have the word balloons filled in yet. You know, that you could do that. Jack Kirby talked about it, that he would just do layout and he would leave the basic story structure and then hand those pages off to Stan, who would then fill in the word balloons. And if there was an objection, they would pull a page, and that would be it. And maybe somebody would do, um, would ink a rough that that Jack had drawn. And so it it once it went through the four color process, you really couldn't tell that much that someone else had worked on it. And he was routinely at that point ghosting a lot of other people's comics. But this was not a new practice in the '60s. This was something that had been happening since the dawn of comics. And when you realize that some of Jerry's students were Steve Ditko, Don Heck. Marie Severin, Eric Stanton, and Jack Abel, um, you realize that they learned their tradecraft from Jerry Robinson. And we hear these stories about how they worked on comics and they would routinely erase stuff. So I thought, after I got these, I really started to think about them. Like, these are inked. Why are these inked? Why would anybody ink a preliminary page? It's a complete waste of paper. And then, since two or three of these panels wound up being in a different story... Why didn't they just use these old preliminary pages and publish them as is in this newer story? That there was a conscious effort to keep these two separate, even though elements of one had been used at a later date. And so when people ask me about the timeline, they say, oh, well, you know, Batman 11 is clearly a year after, you know, um, Batman number one. I'm like, well, you're thinking about this backwards. You're thinking about when the creation that you know was published, not when this would have been thought of. And since that origin of Robin and the Joker are so close that they're within three weeks of release, probably, that um, it's very possible that they're being worked on at the same time. And I think that these pages, while while this clown is not as overtly a Joker as the Joker is, it very much fits the description that George Roussos said was the Joker he had seen and that Jerry talked about. And what really blew my mind when I saw the Dark Knight movie is the mask that... Heath Ledger wears before he reveals himself to be the Joker looks exactly like that clown. (laughs) I mean, it's like an an evil version, like an insane clown posse version of that clown drawing that I have in this preliminary, which is either crazy meta or just a really (laughs) weird, you know, instance of happenstance and kismet. And so I think that it's, it's too much of a mountain of evidence to support that Jerry was absolutely involved in it. And if the only word that says no is the guy that took credit for everybody else's work, then you kind of have to look at it, you know, through the committee opinion. 
and all the professional that worked with him throughout his life. And if you know about Jerry's character, he was not a guy that really fought for himself. He was a guy that fought for a lot of other people. Is there any other independent sources that you could track down to nail this down? Well, everybody's dead, So that, but there's a lot of of interviews that people gave over the years. There were interviews in, in you know, the um, what you would call an industrial publication, like not something that was produced for the newsstand, but like union publications for the Society of Illustrators where people talk about this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, interviews in in other mainstream comic forms and fanzines that go back to the 1950s and 40s where people were talking about this and, and these claims are coming forward. And it's almost also a pretty easy case of, you know, what's the Shakespearean line of, you know, you know thou protestest too much, that the story that Bob Kane has spun is so not true that at a certain point you have to eliminate the story that has been accepted because every aspect of it has been proven to be not true. And if the canon and the history of the canon is not true, you have to look at the other theories. And this is the strongest theory be, you know, that does not come directly from Bob Kane. Right. And London, on your, based on all the research you've done, in the past and all the reading I mean does this make sense to you is what Matt's talking about ring true I definitely wouldn't say that I mean Jerry Robinson definitely could have had the idea of the Joker and Robin at the same time and did the sketches and drawings and everything and it just was published at a different time I'm sure that's the case for a lot of artists dealing with different characters and we all aren't unless you're right there in the studio with them we all don't know the exact creative process it is for the comics and the characters so in looking at the page the pages and the panels that Matt has it's pretty extraordinary and it would be really amazing if this was an indication that Jerry Robinson had this idea of the Joker and because he worked in writing and short stories and things like that and he always liked the idea of making a supervillain and the villain himself and he liked kind of this kind of uh, disfigured character and these dramatic characters that would highlight the hero because he would always say in a lot of interviews that I've seen and read he always says that the hero is rather dull that they they're always supposed to be the one that saves the day and we all know what they're supposed to be doing but villains you know the more formidable a villain the more that makes the hero even greater and so he's always had these ideas and concepts of what a really great villain would be and so I wouldn't be surprised if even though this Joker looks more like the circus clown Joker than the Joker we're all familiar with it's it wouldn't be a stretch to think that he jotted down on this or even other panels and papers about a Joker character. So this is it's pretty interesting that especially when we know what Batman started as exactly that that this (laughs) this wide chasm of what that character started as yes what's interesting is that you know that Jerry was taking a conflict in fiction class when he was developing the story as he tells it and he was at Columbia University well so was Joseph Campbell Joseph was Joseph Campbell was teaching at uh, Columbia and SUNY and a lot of local area colleges and so I'm wondering if somehow whether whether or not he got Joseph Campbell's class, if one of the teachers that he got 
had taken one of Joseph Campbell's classes and was teaching an early version of The Hero of a Thousand Faces. And that this idea, which becomes so important not only to comic books, but, you know, Star Wars, you know, every important franchise that we see in, in science fiction or genre fiction, that it all seems to come out of Joseph Campbell. And here you've got another guy with a direct connection to that. And it's, it to me, like I say, it's whether or not it's the actual Joker, it is clearly a preliminary version of a clown villain. And that makes it a very important historical page. And I don't think that it's too much of a stretch to say that that inspires the Joker. So can you describe a little bit about what makes that a villainous clown? Well, there's, if you look on the page and and on the front, you've got um, the, you know, the flying um, Grayson's dying. And then the the first panel on the back of the page is um, the leader of the circus kind of giving Robin to Batman is like, you know, here, can you take care of this kid type of thing? And then there's some very detailed kind of New Yorker type illustration drawings mixed in with comic panels, but in a grid. And so on the second um, row, you've got a guy saying, boss, boss, Batman's here. I've, I just seen him. And they're talking to this clown. And the clown says something to the guy. And then they go and they consult this other gangster. And then um, they talk about, you know, do you want me to kill him, boss? And um, the other guy kind of tones in, and then it goes off into another series of panels. But this clown character is... Is referred to as the boss. As the boss. And he's in the in two panels. And it seems like there's multiple ideas going on in every row of this page. Like that the story's developing in, in three or four different directions on this one page, which is why it's clearly a prelim- preliminary page. Uh, the word balloon is, is in pencil. Not all of it is inked in, in, the, um, in each individual panel. That um, it was something that he was working out in his head. And it just stands as, as evidence. Now, the other thing that was really interesting to me, like I said, aside from the fact that preliminary pages are so rare, is why would he keep them that long? These are insignificant unpublished pages otherwise that he held on to until the late 1980s at least. And they go into auction at Sotheby's either in the late 80s or early 90s. I wonder if through the description of the Sotheby's auction, there was a, you know, a blurb that stated... It said a double-sided page, double-sided preliminary page. Um, I've... I've put a lot of comic art up at auction. And just this past year, um, we helped handle the um, Ray Zone collection um, for his son, Johnny, who um, has been a great advocate of, of preserving his father's legacy as the greatest 3D um, creator in, in history, possibly. And almost every 3D comic or every 3D anything you saw from the, um, the 70s onward was Ray Zone. And he had an amazing collection of the different types of processes that were being called three-dimensional and even four-dimensional um, going back to the 1940s and late 30s. But the um, when you do hand these things over to the auction house, they spend a little bit of time researching it, and they'll go with whatever you give them. They won't give you much else. And I've even had, in a couple of instances, and I don't necessarily um, blame the auction house for this, um, seen them list things incorrectly. And then I'd have to call up and say, oh, this is wrong. Can you change this? And they'll do it immediately. But that when you're, these days especially, and, and I don't think it was much different even 25, 30 years ago, 
that the volume of pieces that go up for auction all at once, that if it's not a signature auction and that it's a very important prominent page, very obviously, right. then it's easy it's to fall between the cracks. It's just a double-sided page. Or unknown artists, <laughs> right. you know, and that type of thing happens. So, London, did you, when you see that, I mean, what, what do you think? When you see those pages, like, what, what goes through your head? Um, on the, the first side where it has Robin and the circus tent and everything, the visuals, like you said, it's very similar to the early Batman stories. It's like Batman 10 and Batman 11. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me because you get to see these kind of early drawings of something that you, you come to know in a different timeline. Um, and so it definitely shows that, Robinson's involvement with the character of Robin and the character of Joker and especially in the panels looking at when you see the kind of mob guys with the the clown and they call him boss it's interesting because Joker has these kind of goons and henchmen even in the early stories and even now it's it's kind of the same format so those ideas still play out when Joker is made so like I said, unless you are in the studio creating the pages and creating the comic books, you really don't know all of who created. So that's why, especially since Bob came for years, put out everything saying that he was the only one that was involved. But like Matt stated a couple of times that there are so many people involved and everyone is in the same studio and everyone is right there. And they can all really vouch for one another if need be, if they really cared about people getting the right recognition and the right credit. So these pages just show the involvement that these people had in creating some of the most classic DC characters. So it's it's very cool. I've always known Jerry Robinson to be involved with these characters, but for people who doubted his involvement, this would definitely be something that would secure that status of him in the creation of Robin and Joker. Mm. So. And he and Jerry always said that it that as it appeared, as the comic was written, it was very much a Bill Fing a Bill Finger character right that his idea and the direction that that he only considered this the very bare bones of the character and that it was bill finger that really punched up and made that character who it was and so his fight for years to get bill credit once that became an important thing and we're talking really honestly towards the end of 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 bill's life and probably even after bill's death that he was like hey look we got to get this guy credit at this point you know, and I think in in the early seventies, and as he's starting to go through the Superman legal battle with with Warner and helping out Siegel and, and um and Schuster, that um that he probably was like, hey, look, you don't even have to give the guy any money; he's dead. But you should be giving him credit. Mm-hmm. And I think that there were a couple of statements that Bill uh, that Bob Kane made in the seventies that might have spurred somebody who wouldn't have said anything into action. You know, like. If someone's going to take credit for your work egregiously, and in 1975 there was um, an exhibition, and and Jerry got the Rubin Award from the National Cartoonist Society in '63, but he in '75 put together this exhibition of pop art works, um, specifically comic strip stuff, and it was called the Cartoon and Comic Strip Art Show, and it was on Madison Avenue, and there was a Mel Ramos painting of a Jerry Robinson cover in the show at that point in 1975 already 
it was being appraised at one hundred sixty-five thousand dollars, and it hung opposite a Jerry Robinson drawing for which Jerry had been paid a hundred dollars. Oh wow! You know, it's like, oh, that's iconic. Well, yeah, of course it is. (laughs) So, do you think that the pieces of art that we have here, the pages, if you were to sell, would you be able to sell them and say? This is the first appearance of the Joker, or the first, first maybe, you know, iteration. Well, I, I call it a proto Joker. A proto Joker, and um, and I consider it a piece of the evidence chain that can secure Jerry Robinson his rightful place as a co-creator of the character. But um, as far as its value, I mean, you know, a few years ago we had a Todd McFarlane Spider-Man cover sell for. You know, after the dealer, uh, the the buyer premium seven hundred thousand mm. um, dollars. There's a a ton of McFarlane Spider-Man pages out there, right? You know, and even covers. There's forty or something. Mm. Um, there's nothing like this page. I mean, th- there is this only this one thing, and it's from an era already where where original artwork is very scarce. And um, preliminary pages like this are are like unicorns. I mean, it's a unicorn. So, among what unicorns. would you value that at? I mean, I gotta think that under the right circumstances, it's a million dollar page. Wow! You, you know, wouldn't sell it. I, but I, you know, it's like <laughs> it. It's gonna go to a museum. It's not gonna go to a private. Right, collection. I get it. Right. I mean, I, I just, I just, <laughs> just fascinating. Yeah, you know? but no. That I mean, I bought the okay. other page so that I could keep one. You know, knowing <laughs> that it was going to be something that's too important for me to keep in my architectural drawers in my apartment. <laughs> you know, that, that this is something that needs to be exhibited correctly. And, you know, and, and Kevin got on me about it, about, well, you should show it at Lelouz. And I'm like, we're not really built for that, you know, to have, because um, you really need to see both sides of it. And it doesn't really fit into necessarily an exhibition, and it's not for sale. Mm-hmm. So does, that um, it, it's sort of a, a special case. Does Jerry Robinson have a family that is fighting for any of his rights or his credit? I know that Jens, his son, um, is involved in, uh, he's an editor at, at Cartoon Arts International and helped set up the agency that brought illustrators from the New York Times um, into newspapers abroad. And, um, and I, I think the, with him? I'm, I've tried getting in touch with him a few times, mm. and it's not proven easy. But um, I know that this type of thing is good for the Robinson family. And I've heard their stories about um, their dad talking about this stuff. And he and his daughter did many interviews about, you know, his involvement with the creation of the characters, you know, years ago. Um, well, it seemed like he should get at you right now. I know, right? Uh, you want to give him any uh, information which he can if he happens yeah, to listen yeah, to this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and I've, I've actually already gotten a lot of people reaching out to me through the, um, the Podsequentialism show and through Kevin Smith. That have sent me emails, and um, if you want to send me an email at info at popsequentialism.com, um, I'm, I'm monitoring those emails a lot. Um, a lot of people are giving, you know, creative ideas about how to authenticate. It's not really, that's not a problem. Like, the um, the age of the page is clear. It's indisputable. Um, we know it's from the era that it's from. You can tell from the wear on the page. You can tell the type of ink that is used. You can tell the type of pencils, the size of the paper. Um, there's a certain amount of um, paper mold that hits... Um, most pages from that era that is evident on the page. You could date the mold 
you right. know, with within um, a couple years of um, of accuracy. But that none of that is disputed. What is disputed is whether or not, um, you know, it's it's enough proof that it's that Jerry Robinson is a, a co-author of the Joker, and I think that that lies in the court of public opinion. Right. And I think every year that that opinion grows a little bit stronger that Jerry is a co-creator. Right. And there might be that diary where he writes, <laughs> yeah, I created this account. Well, I mean, he, he, there's there's a lot. I mean, he's he wrote in his autobiography a big story about, you know, how, how it all came about. And it's, you can read the Jerry Robinson, um, the Art of Jerry Robinson book has a lot of it in it. I think it's available through Bud Plant. But... Um, you know, obviously, I, I would I'd recommend anybody to, to check out the catalog uh, that we did for the Pop Sequentialism show. And you can get that from, um, you know, through the Pop Sequentialism site as well. You can also reach out to me at La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And, um, you know, it's it's been quite a roller coaster ride. And I think we've hit the point where I don't know that we need really any more evidence so much as we need enough of the public to guilt DC into crediting you know, the the right people, and they don't do it. You know, like, when the Hellblazer series was on, um, I don't know that Steve Bissett and John Tottleben even got their credits on the character. And when that character appears in um, Legends of Tomorrow or The Flash or any of the other uh, CW series, I'm not sure that all the creators are actually getting credited. And so that needs to change. I, I don't know if you saw the Deadpool movie, but there's not a character created by a card for Lee Field and uh, Fabian Nicenza, there's a thanks at the end of the credits. And I There think was they... a coffee cup flying through the... <laughs> right. Uh, with a Rob L on it. Yeah, and he's in the film. He has a, a cameo, and there's a Nicenza Street or whatever. But, um, but it really should say based on characters created by these two right. guys. Right. But, I mean, the argument is, well, just because they created Deadpool, did they create that Deadpool? And I get the argument for that, but... Yeah, they created yeah. Deadpool. I mean, it's they absolutely did. Different writers made him the Merc with a mouth, which is why he's a beloved character, you know, among the fan base. But that character was absolutely created by two people. It's it's very mm. there's an evidence chain where we're living in it. Hey, if Bob Kane got the Batman credit, that's what I'm was saying. It, right, exactly. So, London, is there any? Because I know you had some specific points. I want to make sure we hit on those points because <laughs> I know this just went awesome here no this great art. yeah so <laughs> i there, love all of it <laughs> right was there any other character uh you know did we hit on robin well i mean i, I yeah i mean this is what i i hope the show would have been actually we talked about batman and robin joke and the three main creators we we're focusing on bob kane bill finger and jerry robinson and just we hit on the points of what each person says who created what and because Jerry Robinson does one thing and Bob Kane, as we know, says another. And this, unfortunately, has been controversial for decades. And we're just getting the right credit for creators now. And it's been over 70 years mm. in some cases. And so I think we did talk about all, all of the characters and creators that I wanted to focus on. And it's more just for the listeners, whether you are really into comics and maybe you already knew some of this information. So you learned more about the pages that Matt has and how Jerry Robinson was involved in creating these classic characters way before they even hit comic book stands. And 
hopefully you learned more about the people who created the characters that you love to watch in the movies and play in the video games and watch on TV and learn kind of the ins and outs of DC. I mean, there aren't, a, I mean, the comics, they don't really talk about what, what's happening inside DC Comics and inside the publication, the editors and the people who put the comic together. But you, I think in this episode, you got an inside look of how credit is given and what happens within the studio. And I think that inside look all is great for fans of, of any comic book character. And if you just like the comic book genre, learning about the ins and outs of the book that you love, I think should everyone should know. So, mm. yeah, I, I want to thank Matt for, for coming on. I love your show, and I'm so happy that you got to come on here. Oh, yeah. And I hope me. I can come on your show and talk about anything you want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And so, London, are you going to make these um, – the pages available to see? Yes, I am definitely going to put them on Instagram, on Instagram.com slash History of the Batman, and along with the link to this episode when it's up, and I'll also put them on Twitter and Facebook. So when you are listening to the show and Matt is describing the pages, you can look at them for yourself yeah. and follow along. So yes, they will definitely be up online. So definitely. we could post a picture of that clown that mm -hmm. everyone right. wants to yes. see now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. that's amazing. Yes, and that's now a part of history, whether it gets into a museum or you keep it in your architecture drawers. <laughs> well, we support your version. Yes, definitely. All right. So, London, if people want to... Well, actually, let me start with you, Matt. Right? Did you give every, uh, every aspect or every way that people can get in touch with you? I know you gave the, the, your email. Um, are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Yes, um, if the the two places you can you can reach me on uh, Instagram and Twitter are at La Luz de Jesus, which is L A L U Z D E J E S U S, which is uh, the gallery that I run, and at Panic Collective, which is an art group that I work with, Panic with a K. Um, both of them are on um, on Instagram and on Twitter. And as I said, you can shoot an email or hit the blogs for um, pop sequentialism. And, of course, subscribe um, and stream pod sequentialism to the Meltdown Network and also on iTunes. And uh, you can buy some nifty T-shirts with my logo on them, too. Yeah, T yes. Public. T Public. T Public London, how do we get in touch with you? Well, if you have any comments about this episode, if you want to give your two cents about Bob Kane, Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, the characters then you can always email me at history of the batman at gmail.com um if you have any ideas for future shows i always read you guys emails and if i create a show off of your idea i will definitely shout you out because i appreciate all of your comments and everything feedback thank you all for saying that you like the show and all of the positive reinforcement um, you can follow on Instagram.com slash History of the Batman. You can follow on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Hist of the Batman, on Tumblr at historyofthebatman.tumblr.com, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History of the Batman. But email me at historyofthebatman.gmail.com. I can't wait to hear from you guys. There you go. Well, Meltdown listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in. As Matt said, you got to check out his show, Pod Sequentialism with it's Matt awesome. Kennedy. You can also <laughs> find it on audioboom.com. We've got on some hip hop ish, which is another great Meltdown Network show. We got Meltdown Moms, Two Packs a Day, uh, Meltcast, 
Anime Attic. That is Mason Booker's own Woo-hoo. podcast. That's our engineer and producer, and he's doing a fantastic job with that. I know he's got a Ninja Scroll episode in the works, nice. and uh, I think everyone wants to talk about that one, by the way. Advertisers, you too can reach this prime demographic. Yes, yes, and uh, please let us know what you're thinking. Hope things are going well. And London... Peace, love, and Batman. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.